Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have an amazing person in the beach shack, Nathan Johnston. He was told at the age of seven that he would end up legally blind in the future. But this happened a lot quicker than he actually realised it would, and by the age of 15, he was legally blind. Now, instead of being down the dump, sitting back on the lounge and not doing anything, he decided to get out enjoy the life the best he could and his story is quite incredible in the amount of races he has done in running Ironman triathlon and many many other things and also has raised a lot of money for charity now let's sit back and have a listen to Nathan's story which I'm sure you will all enjoy Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have a very uh, successful person. And But what he's gone through to get to uh, where he is today is an amazing story. Welcome to the Beach Shack, Nathan Johnson. How are you, mate? Yeah, good to be with you, Hoppo. Thanks for the opportunity. Mate, now, <clears throat> let's go back to the beginning. And, and you're a blind athlete, but let's go back to when... All that started. I think you're seven years old, and you were diagnosed that potentially will go blind. Yeah, that's correct. So I was um, fully sighted until I was about six or seven. You know, grew up down here in South of Sydney. You know, played sport with my mates. Went to primary school, and about five or six, I started struggling uh, with my mobility, tripping over things, and balance wasn't the best. Certainly in kindergarten and year one was a bit of a struggle with my reading and and um, looking at certain letters. So that was a bit of a struggle. And then I think it was year one we're doing the uh, the sports testing at school where your teacher throws a football towards you and you're supposed to catch it and run away and all that sort of thing. And every time he threw it at me, I just I couldn't see it enough to pick it up. That was probably the start of the, the sort of testing with my sight and... I suppose going to different medical people to try and figure out what what was really wrong with me or my sight, what the outcome could be, and how how people could help me with that. So, what was it? What's it called? The uh, the diagnosis when they said, you know, this is what you've got. Uh, so it's called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a um, an eye disease which is degenerative. So both my parents were carriers of it not knowing that, and then I've had children. One of the three children has got that. Many people have retinitis pigmentosa today. With that eye disease, it, it starts off with a few different few different areas. I got mine when I was younger. Uh, I've had people know that get in their late 30s and even in their 40s. So with retinitis pigmentosa, it starts off as, you know, you might be just doing your daily life, whatever you're achieving that day, and you might have a 
a bit of a blurry vision or something like that, you slowly lose your night vision first. And I was about nine or ten when that started happening. So night blindness took took a, a little while, probably I don't know, six or twelve months, and then started slowly losing my day vision, uh, which become you know down the tunnel vision, and then. These days, I've only got light perception, which is which is still good. So I know when it's night and day, and a, a couple of little shadows, things like that. But um, a doctor said to me, I'll probably be totally blind at twenty, and I'm in my thirties now, and I've still got a little bit of light perception. So thankful for that, I suppose. Well, mate, how did you take that? Obviously, that's that's you know, as a seven year old, you know, you're running around playing like every kid does, and then. It must have been tough to hear that you were going to go blind. And and then when did you totally sort of get to that point where you couldn't see anything? Mate, I suppose that was a bit of a long journey. You know, diagnosed at seven, I was still going through my primary school years. So I had to learn using Braille, which is, you know, reading pages with dots on it and make letters and words, uh, using a laptop with a speech program on it, a screen reader, which I'm using today to to, you know, read my emails and do daily life. And then guide dogs come out and assess the school grounds to see how safe or not safe it was for me. They trained all the, the guys and girls in my, my classes how to do sighted guide to, to assist me in my mobility. And then in year five, they said, oh, I think you, you might have to use a cane, which is a pretty hard thing to get, get my head around at, you know, year five level and year six level at primary school. You got to use your stick with a ball in it for you know pretty much the rest of your life. Some great people around me, my family, and also people in the community where I live, um, teachers and medical people as well. So yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. It wasn't easy, but um, I think being diagnosed that young did help me a little bit after hearing other people's stories, which happens to them later in life. Mate, did you ever get like? Like, why me down? And the kids at school, were they all supportive? Or, you know, did you get a bit of you know, isolation because of the condition? And because you couldn't see, you couldn't do as much as everybody else? Yeah, mate, I think a little bit, yeah, to start with, because I didn't know how to help me. I was restricted with, you know, different sporting activities, which I couldn't do. So, yeah, that was a challenge. A little bit of, I suppose, could be bullying, could be stigmatisation. Oh, you're, you're a little blind kid you're using a stick to get around but after a while they um they helped me and you know we had games with it and we, we broke a few canes here and there and they, they borrowed it and then one of their mates had shut their eyes and try and figure out how um how hard it really is so yeah f- a few challenges there and mate then um when you got to 15 you couldn't see what did you do mentally how did you then Go, right, I'm just going to move forward. I'm going to do everything I want to do in life. Mate, I think it got to a stage where I was uh, an active kid growing up as my sight was deteriorating and I had, you know, friends around me a similar age. High school was hard. It was hard making friendship groups. It was hard achieving what you wanted to achieve and I don't think my education was uh, the best thing I achieved. Uh, I struggled with that, but... um, I think just keeping myself fit. I started doing a lot of um, swimming in a pool down here because I could do that on my own with people helping me get to the lane and all that. I started doing a bit of ocean, open water swimming down here at the surf club. 
that open water challenge from Colgrove to Stanley Park. And so I started doing those sorts of things just to keep me active. Uh, it was a bit frustrating. I couldn't play the team sports, which you know a lot of my mates got to do with football and soccer and all that sort of stuff. So you're saying when you did the ocean swims, like how did you – you had to have someone with you there to, to guide you along? That's correct, yeah. So it was a two-and-a-half-kilometre um, ocean challenge from – Colcliff to, to Stanwell Park where you go out around the cliffs so I had a person help me swim out to the first boy and then we had a, a friend of mine that was paddling a surf ski with um, he rigged up a little thing off the back of it with a bit of conduit and then we had two two bits of rope which were about 20 metres long with bottles on the end of it so it's like I was swimming in like a bit of a, a lane rope which is swimming in a pool and then he just paddled in front of me and would have other people watching me as well so that was pretty pretty good. It was a good friend of mine. He was um very good surf paddler and he was actually hearing impaired as well. So that was another challenge we had. But, yeah, I got to do that to swim 10 years in a row. So it was pretty good. Mate, it's amazing. Since I knew I was going to interview you, I, I thought, and I do a lot of ocean ski paddling, and I was even over in Portugal for the World Championships just recently, and they've got a, a, a section for people – that have got some sort of a disability and there was a guy that was blind and he actually paddled the 20 kilometer course blind so in my training last week i thought right i'm going to close my eyes and paddle and see how it feels and des said i reckon i went about 10 strokes and i had to open my eyes because it was just so for me it, it, it was something that I'd never experienced before and, and it, it gives you a lot of fear when you can't see and where you're going and i just trying to get in perspective how you must feel and the achievements, you know, swimming in the open ocean, a lot of people can't just do that anyway, let alone not being able to see. So it's so- – No, mate, I think that's where I've had – I've been lucky – well, not lucky but unlucky with being diagnosed early and just having the community the- – the people that have not sort of stopped me doing anything, they've, they've allowed me to and helped me to do all the things I've achieved in the last 20 years. And, we, yeah, we certainly had to modify things and change things to, to achieve what I've achieved. But, um, yeah, I understand that would have been challenging for you just just trying to figure that out after 10 strokes. So, yeah, sport, sport has definitely come a long way over the last 20 years too. Back in the, the late 90s and 2000, we never had, you know, yeah, we certainly had the Paralympics, but we never had, like, the team sports in the social settings or grassroots settings, which today we do where everyone's included. It doesn't matter what impairment or disability you got. And that was great. I was up at Noosa the other weekend where I bumped into your, your mate, Reedy, <laughs> and um, he's, he said, oh, g'day, mate, and knew me name, and that's what blows me away. Like, everyone says my name to me, even though some days I can't think of who it is. Must be a bit frustrating too that all these people say your name, but you can't actually see who, who it is to... But after all these years, though, does... Like, not been able to see, but the, does your hearing get a lot better and do you notice different things and you and it can identify what they are? Oh, I certainly hope I... Yeah, my, my hearing and smell and touch is... It's a lot better. People say, you know, you can hear things way in the distance, which we can't, and you can smell things and pick up things so much quicker than we can. Now, mate, let's go into the sports. You've had an amazing sporting career. 
Let, yeah, let's, mate, yeah. You started off on, you know, you started doing the swimming. Now, what else, what other sports did you do from there? So, so going back to my teenage years, when I was doing open water swimming, ocean swimming, uh, I played a bit of blind cricket out of blind society at infield with all the blindy kids and guys and girls out there. I sort of played blind cricket for probably three or four years to my late teenage years. I was still doing a little bit of walking, trying to keep fit. And then um, the Paralympic Talent Search Day, I had every few years, I had one out at um, the Catholic College at Strathfield in 2005. A friend of mine said, well, why don't you go out there? And even though I wasn't at a Paralympic level, it was more to be mixing with different people with disabilities and impairments. And from that, I, I got opportunities to do running, rowing, or swimming. I was already doing swimming, so I picked the the running. And then a friend of mine's dad was the late Albie Thomas, which is a former Olympic runner. And he had a running squad up at Cogra, south of Sydney. So he said, come down. He said, we've got one other kid with a disability. His sight's not as bad as yours. He gets around without a guide or a handler. And it was all on like a flat sort of trial thing. It was probably a car width wide. And then you ran around a couple of uh, AFL fields. So I started doing that. About 2006, they got me just jogging with a guide runner. And it was so free. And it made me feel like I can can do walking and running with a guide runner. And that was only, I think, we started off doing a 2K. And then we went up to the 4K session. I did that for quite a few years. I, uh, a friend of mine at school said, would you would you do the sub on the surf, which is a 11K fun run in the Shire? And so I've got a mate to help me with that. And we did that in 2000, and I think the first one in 2010. Yeah, it was amazing to just be able to do a fun run with, you know, not worrying about, you know, all the issues of falling and and the crowds and the noise, which I get a bit flustered with. Yeah, that, that was pretty much the start of it all. And how do you find it when, as you said, the crowds, and I've done fun runs myself and, and it's like people are bumping and they're in your way and you're clipping people's feet and how do you deal with that? And and also you're obviously with someone running with you. Is there, are you connected with them at all or how does it work? Yeah, so we've got a uh, guide tether which goes from sort of hand-to-hand or wrist-to-wrist. So I'll have that guide right next to me and then – in a big crowd like the City of Surf or Southern Surf, we'll have one or two other guide runners just pretty much right behind me and then one off the front too, sort of breaking the pack. It is a bit challenging some days because the the individuals that do these distance runs, sometimes they're in their own little mindset and that can be the, the challenge because they're not, they're not focused on blind runner coming through with two or three guides. They're, they're just focused on their own race and maybe their own mindset and what's happening in their life. Well, mate, you do, and, and you're not moving slow because I've noticed here that you've run a sub-20-minute 5K. Now, that's pretty good going for someone you know, can see, but you're doing it and you can't see it all. Like, it's an amazing time what you're doing. Yeah, mate, that, that was uh, that was a few years ago. We, we did that pace, but um, we, we do a little bit slower in a crowded event. But, but, yeah, it's, it's always a challenge, I think. It doesn't matter who you're running with or what people you, you, you're doing it with or what crowd you're in. I always get a little flustered towards the start because you always know that once everyone gets, gets the pace going 
everyone spreads out and it's a bit more room. But yeah, that's always the issue with starting races. And have you ever had like where you've stepped on someone or someone stepped on your, you know, clipped the back of your foot and you've sort of fallen at all? Yeah, certainly, mate. Yeah, I've had a few little trips. I haven't fallen, luckily, but when was it City of Surf probably four or five years ago and someone just moved and stepped on the, the front of my shoe and then we had to stop pretty suddenly. I had people, you know, sort of kick me in the heel because they want to stop trying it past you. So all those little issues come into it and, and you know, I can't react real quick because I don't really know what's going to happen. So, so mate, you love running and then you were swimming. Yeah. Now, a, a, a mate of mine, a mate of yours also, Goro, yeah. Glenn Gorick, he, he helped you in one of the, uh, the Ironman races and you went into doing Ironman racing. And I think, mate, that yeah. achievement is absolutely outstanding because there's a lot of people, and we'll talk about that a bit later on, that yeah. don't even get off the couch to go do something. And here you are out there completing an Ironman race. So, mate, walk us through the... Yeah, can can I just go back a step, please, Hopper? Yeah, Because um, in 2008, too, I forgot to tell you about my cycling bits and pieces. The hotel down here in the local community raised funds for a tandem bike for me and had a full charity afternoon to, to raise a tandem bike for me so I could do the, the city to Wollongong bike race, too. did that in 2008, nine. That was a great achievement. And charity work got me that tandem bike, which I still use occasionally for training today. So... Between my swimming and my running, then I was doing a bit of town cycling with friends. Got asked in 20, 2010 to do some training with the the para team, which was going to London. I, I wasn't that good quality for that, but I got to achieve state and national track and track cycling medals. So I'll go back to your your question about Glen Gorick and Ironman racing. That's a great achievement in its own right. You talk about struggling to get off the couch. You know, I'm a person with disability, a lived experience of that. And if we didn't have the people like myself or Kurt Fernley or Naz Benelli out in the public eye doing sport or, or doing business stuff, we'd be, we'd be thought of as, you know, sitting at home doing nothing. So I think that's why I push myself each day to, to go and do my exercise or achieve goals. And you, you certainly talk about people not getting off the couch. Well, there is problems with that. I think everyone should just get off the couch and go and try and do anything. It doesn't have to be an Ironman. It can be a, a 2K walk or a half an hour cycle or go down to Bondi Beach and have a swim with the great Bondi lifeguards like yourself. Well said, mate. Now, the Ironman race in Hawaii, that's something that, you know, the, it's a massive achievement. And so tell us, about one, the training for it, and two, how yeah. you actually achieve that goal. So, mate, I, I uh, met your your mate, my mate, Glenn Gorick, after a fun run back in 2011. We started doing some some aquathons and then some short course triathlons out at Penrith. And I had plenty of people in the local community could help me, you know, run and ride a bike for, for you know, up to the half marathon distance, but then certainly train for the Ironman distance which Crazy Gorick got me involved with, was just unbelievable, uh, where I had to have six or eight people every week help me train and had um, one of the white side help me squad training a couple of times a week, doing 3K in the pool, had three or four guides running with me. And then 
two to three people cycling each week too before we even got to that Ironman distance. You know, we did a half Ironman distance, which is 70.3, which is 2K, 90K cycling and a half marathon. The first one of those I did, I thought I was going to die. But we certainly got through that. Goro asked me to do the Port Macquarie Ironman back in 2013. There's a few people from the local area, a friend of ours that was supposed to do it, had motor neuron disease at the time, Sean Crowley. So we all all had the charity part to do with the Ironman as well for motor neuron disease in New South Wales. Then we got up to Port Macquarie, ready to go for the race. And certainly I was, uh, I was a bit nervous and a bit flustered. You know, to start a race where you, you've had some negative comments from people saying you're, you're probably not going to finish it or you, you haven't trained enough to, to start a race even to put your big tail on that start line is an achievement you know uh, even if it's the Australian Ironman or the World Ironman so we we did the Port Macquarie Ironman and 3.8 climb the swim so I had you know a guy there with me and then another mate Shuey he was uh he was swimming with us and then we got out of the bike onto the bike leg and Guy and I went and got on the tandem bike for 180 kilometres in in the uh, in the heat around the the Port Macquarie course out the Lauren and back. We also had Channel 10 filming us for that, which is really nice. Come back to do four loops to the the Subedo Port, which is uh, 42.2 kilometres. So we did that, and then during that year we did a lot of other charity fun runs and short course triathlons. I was sponsored by Coats Hire at the time. And a couple other companies, Goose Sport and Kenilmore Clothing. So they all helped out as well as Oakley. So did that in 2013 and went back to Port in 2014. Achieved the Ironman a bit quicker in 2014 and then went to Melbourne in March 2015 on the flat course down there. And they said to me, if you complete Melbourne Asia Pacific Championship in a certain time, you'll you'll receive an entry for Hawaii World Ironman Championship which, you know, everyone talks about in Ironman fraternity. The World Ironman is the pinnacle of the sport being in Hawaii. We completed the Melbourne one in about 13 hours, fi- finished that and, and went home. And there was a bit of a, a problem with they weren't going to grant me an entry. Then they changed their mind, got got up to Port Macquarie in May for the presentation. They said, here's your, um, here's your invitation for Hawaii in October 2015. So, so that was a big surprise. And what was that feeling like when you, you actually achieved that and you knew you were going to go do the Hawaiian Ironman? Yeah, mate, it was, uh, it was a great experience. You know, I was a bit starstruck because, you know, everyone knows who I am is what I said to you earlier. And, you know, a lot of the men and women in the, not just in the sporting community, the business community I met over the years, you know, you're going to Hawaii. So that was not just a surprise, but I was a bit, a bit worried about it, a bit nervous about it. You know, Toyota sponsored this, the, this spot to go to Hawaii as an invitation, so it was very kind of their company. Try Travel helped us out with the, the Try combination to get there. But, mate, I've done a heap of triathlons in the heat and the wind, and nothing can prepare you for the, the heat and the conditions of the Hawaii Islands. So, mate, when you got over there, you've obviously you did all the training you need to do, and then you got over there. How was that when you're on the line ready to start and you had Goro next year as well? And yeah, what, what was the feeling like? Oh, mate, I was nervous as buggery. Like, we, <laughs> we got there a week earlier for a few other corporate reasons. And, you know, Greg Walsh is a good friend of ours. He really looked after us and helped me out a bit with, you know, what the conditions can be like and what 
they they might be like on the day. Nothing prepares you for when you're floating 200 metres in, in the salty water off the start line because it's a deep water start for the Hawaiian Ironman. So everyone's sort of hanging off our little canoes and, and things and just floating out and treading water out, out there 200 metres where the start line is. They fire a cannon. So the first waves of the professionals, men and then the professional women, then the, the heat just goes and we, we sort of started towards the side. So I had Glenn with me. We had the tether off our ankles. We're swimming in speedos and a cap and goggles because it's 28 degree water temperature, very salty. Yeah, we swam like that and we got down the first count. I think in about 50 minutes, I knew there was a two hour cutoff. So if you didn't make it back to the shore to transition by two hours, they come out on a boat and pick you up and go, well, that's the end of your day. So you made it through that time or? Yeah, so we, we come back in in about, I think it's about five minutes to spare with the swim. Uh, got out, went and got the tan to buy here, transition, bike shoes and helmet on and got a bottle of fluid into me on the on the bike going out of town and well, that's probably mid-morning by that stage and the wind was already up and, you know, it's it's a different heat in, in Hawaii than it is here. It's a dry heat and, yeah, very uh, very flat, flat road service, so it's good for tan a bike or there's a lot of other athletes with disabilities over there, with wheelchairs and that, so very flat flat road service, but it's it's 90k out, out to the top of the island up at Harvey, which is a little country town. So last bit, that's about a fair few kilometre uphill climb to the Harvey turn point and then you turn up there and come all the way back down the conditions were shocking Popo it was about a 30k crosswind so the tin of bikes getting thrown around in the wind we lost a few hydration bottles you know Glenn did his, did his best to uh to get me through that bike ride and then how we got back to town to get get ready for the run but um yeah certainly experience I'll never forget now, just tell us a little bit for listeners that don't know how the tandem bike works. And you're doing all the pedalling, but there's obviously uh, Goro was on there as well. Yeah, so, mate, tandem bike, a lot of people don't understand. So they think only one person pedals. Well, that, that's not true. Tandem bikes, double bike for, for people with, you know, any person with vision impairments or other disabilities to use. And two people pedal at the same time. If the person, one of the persons doesn't pedal, it doesn't work. So you've got to both got to pedal. Mm. And then the steering, is, is the who's doing the steering? So the person in the front does the steering and the brakes and all the gearing. So from there, you come off the bike. Is there a cutoff after the bike? So you're still within that time? With the swim and the bike leg, you've got to be finished both those by 10 hours. So we did just under two hours for the swim and then just on seven hours for the bike. So we had a bit of time there, and then you had 17 hours to finish the whole day. We come in back to the start line for the run and got changed in all our running gear, got out of the course, very hot, and we finished 15 hours, six minutes. So it was, uh, we're lucky. We still had a bit of spare time, so it was good. But the whole day, I think I was a bit worried, a bit nervous, you know. We've come all this far, all this way to do a race. You know, I've got sponsors and... I just hope we can finish it. No, I think that was the thing that was in the back of my head all day. And, mate, with the uh, finish, though, the finish line, I've seen on – I've never been there to, to witness it live, but I've seen it yeah. on TV and people hang around right to the end. And what was the feeling like coming through to the finish and, yeah, you got people cheering and yelling out? Well, mate, it was something that was unbelievable. I'll never forget it. 
you know, we'd been out, you'd basically melt in the hall on sun all day, and about three mile a gay on top of this big hill, and you can hear the music pump in the distance. I was pretty pretty smashed then. And the guy said, you know, just hold together. And we're a pack of about 20 people, and everyone had the wobbly boots on. We were all together, and I think we just kept kept everyone going. And they come down Pilate Hill back into town. Pete Murray and a few people I knew ran the last two miles with me to the edge of the finishing shoot. So this is 10 o'clock at night. It's him and a few mates and three or four little kids running with me in thongs for two miles to the edge of the finishing shoot. And then you got to be on your own or you get disqualified. And there's a big tree right near the, the finishing shoot, so you got to pat the big tree. <laughs> and, mate, the, the place is pumping. There's people, like, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night, and it's like it's it's daytime. Everybody's ready. Everyone's ready to party. And, like, we stay there until after midnight to cut off, and there's still people coming in after midnight. And the place was like a party, I reckon, you know, well into the early hours of the next day. Mate, absolutely amazing. What an achievement. Now, mate, also, that's not all you've done. You've also driven a car at the Pheasantwood racetrack, and I've done that myself. It's an amazing experience. But you've done that as well? Yes, mate, yeah, yeah. Gorg's mad mate, Shelly, owns a track down there, and they, uh, they invited me down there to do a little little trick with a drive car. I didn't think we were going to be on Channel 9 News, but anyway, it was, uh, you know, I think that was one of my challenges during my teenage years, you know, watching all your mates get their old plates and pee plates, and... You're sitting there a bit, bit, uh, bit flat because you can't achieve that. So it was a, a great opportunity to get to go down to Pheasantwood and you know get in the car. I think we spent two or three hours on the Monday getting to learn the car and all the safety aspects. If something does go wrong, what do I do? And then I think we spent half a day on the Tuesday and and Mike Dalton come down from nine and they put a couple of cameras on the car and we went around Pheasantwood and did all that. So yeah. Well, mate, you've also done plenty of things. There's flying a plane, you've skydived, hot laps yeah. with John Bow. And I had Johnny Bow on the on the podcast a while ago. And yeah, look, mate, what what have you got to say to to everybody out there? Because what you're achieving, you, you've never given up. You, you you constantly keep wanting to achieve things. You've also got a bachelor of business degree as well. So, how do we motivate people to get out there and and, and get off the couch? Mate, I, I just think you've got to keep motivating people. It doesn't matter if you're disability or from the able-bodied sector. You, you need a list of goals, and I don't care who you are or what age you are either. You could be in your 80s and you still want to achieve goals. I think for everyone's mental health and physical health, you certainly need to, to have a list of things you want to tick off. And they could be, you know, doing a, going to study a course. could be some of the things I've achieved. It could be, you know, going down to... To have a run on Bondi Beach with some mad bloody lifeguards. You know, <laughs> not Reedy though, mate. Not uh, no. Reedy doesn't even get his hair wet, mate. <laughs> so well said, and and that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and get people out and about, mate. What was there a mentor that you had over the, all the years? Oh, I think the lady I'll be Thomas taught me a lot. Just just to be who you are, and it doesn't matter if the media and things come into it. You know, still still do the things you. You want to do to keep you humble and to to do things like that. You know, I've had yeah many challenges in my life. You know, even if you're doing charity stuff, I've done a lot of things with charity over the years. You know, motor neuro disease. I started a fun run down here in the community, uh, which went for three years, raised fifty thousand dollars for motor neuro disease in New South Wales, and that was all because 
uh, having a beer at a pub with a few mates and they said this race was done back in the, the 80s we haven't had it since I think you can help us you know we did that for charity but, but yeah certainly people have got to have their their own mindset and their own goals to, to, to tick off and Hoppo I'd like to tell you mate you know you're interviewing me today you've learned a lot but I think that people need to be humble to everyone and nice to everyone and certainly you might not chip that goal off the first go you go but certainly after you know three or four attempts you'll get it done mate also you mentioned charities and you've done a lot of work with charities you've also met Glenn and McGrath so you know what was that like Oh, mate, I met him back in 2012 at the start of the Black Moors Marathon with, with Gyro and another mate, Glenn's Tony Abbott, the opposition lawyer at the time, and, and Pidge comes up to me and goes, hey, Nath, how you going? And shakes me in. I was a bit like you. I was a bit starstruck, mate. I didn't know him from a bar of soap, and I was a bit, not flustered, but I was just like, you know, when you're a bit starstruck about any high-profile man or woman you get to meet in, in the circles that... I've got to sort of mingle in the last sort of 10 years or so. Yeah, he's, he's a bit like you. He's just worked hard to, to achieve what he's achieved. Mate, going back to the uh, the Hawaiian, you, you got second in the world category, is that correct? Yeah, I got second in the VI category. So I had, I think there was about 12 athletes and I think there was maybe four VI category in the VI category. But they sort of clumped it all in together, had wheelchair athletes, hand cycles and all that together. So, yeah, that, that was nice to not just to finish Hawaii in a, in a respective time without getting the cutoff. But, yeah, very, very humbled to, to get second in my category. Mate, so, yeah, great achievement. But there's one question I've got here that uh, I got told by a, a certain person, so I'm going to throw this one at you. certain person? Yeah, it was- yeah, Goro was the one, mate. Yeah, yeah. He wanted, what did you eat in preparation for your first Ironman? Can you tell oh, us? I that thought one? this would come up. I thought this would come up. <laughs> so, so you've met met Goro over the years, and how how good he is, and yeah, you know, he he knows everything. And I thought, I haven't known this guy for that long. Well, everyone says he's done twenty Ironmans. Well, I'm going to go in the pub, and I'm going to have a diet coke and a fisherman's basket for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and then have a bowl of cargo pops for, for breakfast with a cup of tea. And uh, about about halfway through the swim, I got a massive cramp in my leg, didn't I? So that, so that sort of told me not to be smart-ass ever again. <laughs> Did he give you a bit of a baggie on that? Oh, mate, I've never seen someone run around a, a – or hear about someone running around the transition area so fast to get me a full bottle of electrolyte drink and <laughs> you drink this whole bottle now. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty funny. You know, you've got an OAM as well, an award. So, how was that? Oh, mate, that was a very big surprise. I actually nearly deleted the email. Seriously, I got, I got an email. It must have been March, April, twenty twenty-one. Because my screen reader reads your, your, your list out, and then I opened it. I was scrolling through it, scrolling through it. I thought it was a bloody scam thing. And lucky I kept it for a couple of days and I showed um showed family member and they said, No, no, scroll right at the bottom with my arrow key and then it tells me in the bottom uh, Office of the Governor General RRA. I'm like, Bloody hell, you gotta fill this form in and mate, I was it was a bit 
with Tron White. I'm like, hey, who's nominating for this? It's very uh it's very humbling for someone to nominate me. But um to actually be awarded it was certainly a, another another thing that was very achieving and humbling. What have you got coming up now? Have you got any more goals to come up? I think you're about to run the Cradle Mountain in Tasmania. Yeah, I've got that, but I've just completed a Noosa triathlon as well up at Noosa where I bumped into your mad mate, Rudy. Oh, mate, you'd, you'd get sick of hearing his voice on the microphone, wouldn't you? Uh, well, can you ask Rudy for me? He got the commentary in the special fun run, which is two laps, and he ran it that quick. He was busted by the end of the first lap, thinking he only one lap, and then he had to go around again. <laughs> mate, that's what he does. He's 100 miles an hour, mate. Just, just goes one pace. Yeah. It's great having you in the beach shack. You're an inspiration to me and, and listen to your story. And it's something that everybody out there listening should take on board and, and get out there and, and, and do what you need to do to, to keep yourself you know, fit and active. and But, mate, it must be times, though, where you do get a bit down on yourself. And, and you know, how do you sort of get through that? Oh, certainly. I've, I've, I've had some, you know, I suppose everyone does it in their life has the good and bad days. But I think you, you've got to have that mental strength where you can you can snap yourself out of that, I suppose. You know, I've had some some good people over the years I look up to, and good people check on me, and and you know, you go and have a walk or a, a catch up or a coffee or whatever with them, and and you know, it makes you feel better, but it also makes them feel a bit better, I suppose, as well. So those things, you know, just try and do something in a routine sometimes works for people too, uh, which I find is good. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things with that. You know, you, you have your your moments there, but then you think about, oh, well, you know, that, that little girl out there has got cancer, she could die. Or, you know, when I was doing all my Ironman racing, I had our friend Sharni, she was dying of motor neurone disease. So things out there, Hoppo, which you and I can't control. People live with their disabilities or impairments or whatever they, they're dealing with at the time. And you just got to be, I suppose, mentally strong. And, mate, Go and do your meditation or your counselling or whatever it takes to, to get through that. And I think it's great that, you know, we're, we're all talking about it now and, and everybody is being included. It's inclusive to, for everybody to be in all different sports or business or, or it doesn't matter what your background is. It, it, you know, everyone's starting to get a fair go, which I think it's uh, very good moving forward. It is hobo, it certainly is. You know, when I spoke earlier about when I was a, a kid growing up and we, we didn't have this sort of great inclusion for for men and women with disabilities in, in not just sport but in grassroots level sport. And people I've heard speak over these talk about you don't have to be a prof- professional sportsman or women. You can you can be social. Go and go and play your bowls or your golf or your cycling or you know, go to surf club with everyone and and, you know, just have a bit of fun. I think that's the thing that's taught me over the last 10 or 15 years. Mate, 100%. Now, mate, at the end of the interview, I do a segment called Five Fun Facts. I'm going to throw five questions at you. You can answer them however you want. And uh, here we go, mate. Favourite childhood memory? Uh, mate, I think it'd have to be living at Plateau Road where we grew up. It was on a hill. 
and you could go screaming down the street on a skateboard or a belly cart, not being able to see much where you were going, playing with me, me neighbours and all the little boys and girls on the street. Uh, I think that's one of the, the great memories I have. Uh, Favourite takeaway food? Oh, I hope I'd have to be, I think, a big chicken stencil burger. <laughs> what are you most proud of? Oh, hope I, that's a hard question to answer, but um, most proud of, I think, um, you know, certainly achieving Ironman Australia and also Ironman Hawaii. But, yeah, I think just, just being achieving life too. But what's something your brain tries to make you do and you have to will yourself not to do it? Oh, I think it's when we've got these nice able-bodied people want to tell us how easy living life with disability is when they don't have any understanding or insight into it and I try not to swear at them. <laughs> what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Powder finger these days. Good stuff, mate. Great answers. Nate, mate, it's been a pleasure having you in talking about your life and you, you know what you've been through and, mate, it's an inspiration and hopefully a lot of listeners will take a lot out of it and, and hopefully what you're doing is going to help everyone else. There could be kids out there coming through now with disabilities, but what you're doing is encouraging them to have a goal and achieve something and also, you know, able people, they're the ones that really need to, you know, Let's all get together and help everyone. And as you said, be kind and, and to everybody. And uh, you know, we could all uh, live a very happy life. Certainly, Hoppo. There's uh, there's many younger people or older people that can can learn. But but certainly, thanks for the opportunity from the beach shack today. And hopefully, I can have a swim or a beer at Bondi Beach soon. Mate, you're welcome down there any day. We'll uh, catch up for a beer for sure. Thanks, Hoppo. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure for Beach Banner. We've got Andy Mole. Now he's got plenty of stories. How are you, Andy? Hey, good, Hopper. How are you going, buddy? Yeah, good, mate. I thought we'd start with the first one when you were born and bred from uh, the UK. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was actually born, believe it or not, in the middle of Birmingham, which is nowhere near the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) So so how did you get into lifeguarding? Did you start over there at all? Uh, Well, not really, no. What happened was I was very fortunate in uh, in my young life to to be given the opportunity to live in South Africa. My folks moved over to South Africa when I was really young. Would have been around about eight or nine. And we live in a place, well, not far from Durban, which is one of the major uh, cities on the south coast in Natal. And I lived in a little town called Amams and Toti. So that what's got introduced to the ocean there. And, and I just took a massive love for it and, and started lifeguarding when I was probably around about 18. So some years ago now, Hoppo, over in South Africa, I first started lifeguarding. Yeah, yeah. So that was at Durban? Yeah, it's in Durban. So it's probably about 20 minutes south of Durban on the south coast. A lot of famous point breaks all the way along there, as you know. A lot, a lot of great surfers have come out of Durban as well, which is great. The likes of Sean Thompson, Mike Burness, all those guys. So, And even Martin Potter as well, who I worked with his brother many years ago in Newquay, Darren Potter. 
So yeah, that's where I started my career. And then my parents moved back to the UK. I would have been probably around about 19 at the time. And I thought, there's no way I'm going back to Birmingham after being growing up near the coast. I don't know where you know where, where you know where Birmingham is, but it's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, I've, heard uh, of, I've heard of the soccer team, mate, but I don't yeah, know where yeah, it is. Yeah, and they're not very good. My team's West Brom, as you know, mate, and they're not much better. <laughs> so yeah, so then I ended up living in Newquay for probably, oh, geez, Probably close to 12 years. And as you know, Hop, um, over the years, a lot of Australians, especially in the early, well, probably from the early 60s, really, were going over to, to Newquay and working on the beaches in uh, the UK, where they brought a lot of experience in Australia. So, yeah, I was really fortunate in my early career to work with a lot of Australians over in the UK, in Newquay, which is a great party town. It's a, it's a great place to live. And then was given the opportunity to come over to Australia in the mid-90s to work over up, up in the northern beaches in Sydney. So you did come over here and you did work in, in the, as a lifeguard. So how was that initially working northern beaches compared to working over in uh, Newquay? Well, mate, it's the whole demographics of the people that use the beaches. Uh, Australians kind of know how to swim. <laughs> so Pommies don't know how to swim. Um, but yeah, I worked at Freshie, which was a massive eye-opener. And, and Freshie's a, a very busy beach, as you know, in the northern beaches. And I really learned a lot of my skills there and, and worked with some great lifeguards, a lot of guys that you know yourself. And then working in the UK, well, you, you're dealing with people that come on holiday and go to the coast maybe once a year that have no idea of the ocean. Pretty much like an average day at Bondi Beach, really, as we know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from Northern Beaches, where'd you go to then? Because you've done a fair few areas as a lifeguard. And did you go back to the UK in the Australian winters? Yeah, so basically for probably around about 10 seasons, I used to do seven months in, in Australia, the long, which was the longest season of the lifeguarding seasons. And then I worked four months over in the UK and then spent about a month in between obviously surfing around Indo. I used to do a lot of trips to Indo on the way over and stuff like that. So did that for probably about 12 or 13 years um, before I uh, moved over to WA for a while and got a full-time job over there in Scarborough. So I worked over in, in WA for a while. And, and as you know, I was, I was down in Kiama for about 13 years down there looking after the lifeguard service just down here on the south coast. And then you've also worked Sunshine Coast? Yeah, yeah, had a little stint up at the Sunshine Coast on the well and the well travelled lifeguard, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, worked up on the sunny coast with some great guys up there, and uh, spent about three years up there as a training and education coordinator up there, which was fun. And yeah, different different feel up there in Queensland as well. Yeah, so that was a great time up there, and moved back to Kiama. And, and as you know, I've, I've been up at Bondi with you guys now for around about three seasons now. I think I'm coming up for this year. So yeah, and I've. As you know, Hop, I've known you a long time. We've done a lot of travelling ourselves too, so it's, it's great. I love being up there. Yeah, and what do you find about it at Bondi? Is it it's a bit different to where you've worked elsewhere? Well, look, it, I think it blew me away. I mean, as you know, like over the years, you know, we've always watched the shows and, you know, we've been at conferences together and and I suppose until I actually worked up there and yet we really haven't had, a, you know, a busy summer yet because obviously the COVID over the last three seasons, but... Yeah, just the, the sheer volume of people that get on that beach and just the people really that, you know, have no really great surf sense, you know, just dealing with that type of demographics and, and dealing with people from different cultures and backgrounds, etc. But, you know, I've had my fair share of that over in the UK as well and, 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 you know, working up in Queensland. So, you know, I suppose it's just a bigger, bigger volume of people really we're dealing with at Bondi. 
and at least you get to practice. What what I like about it is you get to practice what we train. So you get to practice rescues, you practice yeah. you know, first aids because you're getting that just about every day something happens. Well, yeah, you do. You, yeah, everything's, there's, as you always said, uh, and I've witnessed it since I've been there, there's never a dull moment at Bondi, even on the most cloudiest of days and, and you don't think anything's going to happen. Something always throws a curveball at you. You know, so you know, yesterday we were having a pretty good day late afternoon and we had a, a lady having a seizure on the boardwalk, you know, so... All these things happen daily, but it's great. I mean, obviously, I do a lot of training myself, but when you're actually putting in, putting it into practice, um, I think it's a great, great experience to, to work on a busy beach like that. And it's great for the younger lifeguards as well. I find that they learn a lot from it as well, working up there in Sydney. Yeah, I think if you work Bondi and around Bronny Tamarama, you pretty much could just about work as a lifeguard anywhere in the world. I think you're, you're spot on, and um, like I've worked some dangerous beaches in my career, and uh, and I tell you what, that Tamara Bronte stretch of coastline is probably by far one of the most dangerous parts of the coastline in the in the world. I would I would say, and when the rescues happen there, as you know, they they can go badly wrong sometimes as well. So you've really got to be on your guard there. Well, Andy, mate, it's great having you in the beach shack, having a chat about uh, your lifeguard career and uh we'll have to uh, get you in very soon no worries hopper thanks for the chat and uh yeah we'll see you down the beach soon now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag this week's letter in the mailbag is from geraldine and she is from victoria is bondi rescue actually coming back to be filmed again because I keep hearing different stories that it is and it isn't. Well, Geraldine, uh, I'd like to say, and, and I'm quite happy to say that uh, Bondi Rescue will be filmed in the upcoming season. Uh, they will come in around mid-December, film seven days a week until mid to end of Feb. So that's season 17, which should air some stage in 2023. So Good news, Bondi Rescue keeps going and hopefully it will be another successful uh, TV show come next year. Thanks for your uh, letter and I will catch you all again next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.